Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm your producer, Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Recently, Rob completed a teaching series entitled Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns. This course will teach you how the book of Psalms was arranged and motivate you to create a personal hymn book inside your mind. You'll also journey alongside a young music minister as Rob guides him through 60 classic hymns we should never lose. This unique course includes a downloadable guide to the book of Psalms, live music samples of select hymns, and a bonus interview with worship professor Vernon Whaley. For a limited time, we're offering this nine-session online course at a 50% discount. Visit robertjmorgan.com and click on the Courses link to find and enroll in this self-paced study using any computer or mobile device. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. I'm recording this today in a hotel room, and there's a chipper truck outside grinding up parts of trees, so I hope that that doesn't intrude too much on the sound. I came here to Houston in order to do a Psalms concert with uh, Jeff Bennett, my friend, and his orchestra at Second Baptist Church. He uh, made arrangements of the most beautiful psalms, and we uh, sang them, songs inspired and hymns inspired by the psalms. We sang them, and the orchestra played them, and I gave commentary in between, and it was a fabulous experience, one of the most wonderful things I've ever been a part of. And then I stayed over an extra day to be with my friends, Jeremiah and Audrey Johnson. And I want to recommend to you everything that Jeremiah writes and everything that he says. He is just a brilliant young man. I learned so much from him. He is the founder of the Christian Thinkers Society. Uh, He has a new book coming out on Unleashing Peace, the Power of God's Shalom this fall, but you can check some of his others, other books out as well. And I just love this guy and his wife, Audrey, and their son and daughter and triplets. So what a wonderful joy that was for me. Well, today I want to continue on with our study of the book of Acts, and I'm going to cover some ground here. So if you are where you can open your Bible and study along with me, I want to review beginning with chapter 13 of the book of Acts. This is where um, the church and Antioch sent off the first missionary team in history that was commissioned by a local church, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. So they went to Cyprus. They sailed over to this island and went from one end of it to the other and I think converted the governor of the island, whose name was Sergius Paulus. The story of that is told in the first part of the chapter. And then they go up to Pisidian Antioch. They come to the end of the island. They sail across a little strip of the Mediterranean to what today we would call uh, southern Turkey. And then they, instead of going eastward towards Ephesus, they go into very rough terrain up mountain trails to a place called Pisidian Antioch. And why they went in that direction is a mystery. But I believe that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to these very churches not long after this first missionary journey. And he said, it was because of a sickness that I came to you. And we have the idea that maybe he had malaria or, uh, in my opinion, maybe um, 
eye disease uh, by parasites, and he had to get away from the swampy coastland. And so they went up to this area. His first recorded sermon, uh, which I'm not really taking the time to go over with you, uh, is in the book of Acts, chapter 13, the last half of the chapter. Then in chapter 14, they go over to Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And then at the end of that, at the end of chapter 14, they finish this first missionary journey. And it says in Acts 14, 26, from Italia, they sail back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. I love that sentence, the work they had now completed. God assigns to us stages of our works or projects, and we faithfully bring them to completion. And then he has another one for us. And then it says in verse 27, on arriving there at the church in Antioch, they gathered everyone together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. He doesn't define long time, but I do believe that something happened here, that Paul received word that Judaizers were going through this area where he had just been, and they were teaching these new churches and these new converts that they had to be circumcised, they had to become Jewish, they had to keep the Jewish dietary laws, they had to keep the Jewish holidays if they were really going to be Christians. This was a very deep uh, misunderstanding and an enormous conflict in the early church. This is the first great theological battle in Christianity. So it's at this point here, when Paul is staying a long time with the disciples, that I think he wrote the book of Galatians. And he sent it back to this area of Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch. And he said in that letter, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, preaches a gospel other than the one that we preached, may he be anathema. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserted, deserting the one who saved you by grace and through faith. So this, I believe, now there is another theory, but uh, my main commentary that I'm using for this study has been Witherington III, who's a brilliant uh, biblical scholar, and he agrees with me, or I agree with him on this, that it's at this point that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And then the issue became widespread, maybe because of Paul's book of Galatians, but this whole heresy that you had to become Jewish instead of become, becoming uh, uh, saved by grace through faith, apart from Judaism, this entire belief system enveloped the church in a conflagration. And so in chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council when Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem and the apostles and the church elders and leaders gather together and James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is the head of the Jerusalem church, they all gather together and they bring this to a resolution and issue a decree. And all of that is in chapter 15. It's a very important chapter, but I only want to touch on one thing, and this is what they decided, and it's in chapter 15 and verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is um, 
Bishop James speaking, the half-brother of Jesus and the head of the Jerusalem church. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from its earliest days and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, this was a little bit troubling to me. Why these four things? If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to become a Christian, then you have to stay away from four things, and that is food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and blood. Why are those the four requirements that all Gentiles are to keep? And Witherington makes a very good point in his commentary, and and it helped me see this, that all four of these things were intimately connected with the pagan religious rituals that were common throughout the Roman Empire, because food polluted by idols doesn't mean that you just go down and buy a steak, which at one point may have been sacrificed or or butchered in a, um, a temple of a false god, which all meat was almost back then, it really means that you yourself brought your sacrifice to a false god, to Zeus, or to one of these deities, these demonic deities, and you worship there by the offering of this sacrifice, which then they would give you back for food so you could have a barbecue. Sexual immorality was tightly connected with these pagan worship practices. There were both female and male uh, sexual rituals that went on. Meat strangled, um, had that was a part of the ritual when they would uh, drain the blood out of the animal, and then the priest would very often drink the blood. So all four of these things are a way of saying you must stay away from idolatry, from these idolatrous practices of the pagans in the Roman Empire. You are to be distinct. You are to be different. But you don't have to keep all of the Jewish dietary or rituals or um, holidays or hygienic practices. You don't, in other words, have to become Jewish to become Christians. You have to separate from idolatry and say that Jesus Christ alone is God, and by faith in him through grace, you can be saved. And so that was the decision of the Jerusalem Council, and Paul and Barnabas and others took it back to Antioch. One of the men that went with Paul back to Antioch was Silas, and everybody was very happy with that. It says that the um, people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Acts 15, 31. Well, verse 36 says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns that we visited and that we preached the word of God to. Let's see how they're doing. He wanted to go back and retrace that first missionary tour. Barnabas wanted to take John Paul, who had deserted them, and this led to the famous division between them. It says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. He went back to um, the trip that they had made to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's um, native land, and Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of God. And he went through Syria 
And he went through some of that Galatian region in chapter 16. That's where he met young Timothy, decided to take him along as well. But then Paul faced a real dilemma. He wanted or thought that he should go further into Asia, but it says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Look at Acts 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions, that would have been Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we know those three at least, and maybe only those three, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed down to Mysia and went to Troas. I'm not exactly sure how the Holy Spirit was communicating to them. Uh, But certainly Paul had this deep conviction and maybe a revelation that they should not go in the directions that he had intended. So he just waited. And it says in verse 9, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Macedonia was Europe. It was across the Aegean. It was northern Greece. And this man of Macedonia was begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now look at verse 10 very carefully. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Suddenly here, the writer is saying, we and us. So we know it's at this point in the narrative that Paul meets Mark and Mark meets Paul, and Paul is recruited. The gray, uh, Mark is recruited. Um, I'm sorry, I'm saying Luke. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. It's at this point that Paul meets Luke, and Luke meets Paul, and Luke is recruited, and he begins to travel with them. And at this point, the travelogue becomes a first-person account. Now, I tend to think that Luke was this man of Macedonia, Um, that Paul saw a vision of a particular man saying, come over here and help us. And the next day he said, that's the man in my vision. And it was Luke. And Luke said, I'm from Macedonia. Now, I'm not at all sure about that. Some people think that Paul had a vision of Alexander the Great, who had been dead for a long time and certainly uh, wasn't a believer in any way so far as we can know, but he was known as the man of Macedonia. He was the great Macedonian. So we don't really know who this man of Macedonia was. It was just someone who was really identified with Macedonia, but it's at this point that Luke enters the story, and Luke begins traveling with Paul and writing in the first person. Up until this point, when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he had to use sources, but now he was speaking in the first person. So in verse 11 of Acts 16, it says, From Troas, we, notice that again, put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. And on the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer, This is uh, apparently not a very large Jewish community there. And so rather than a synagogue, the Jews who were there just met by a riverside. And one of the ladies 
was Lydia, this dealer in purple cloth, and, and she was converted. It says the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel, and that was the beginning of the church in Europe and the beginning of the church in Macedonia and in Philippi. And then Paul encounters a demonic woman. He casts the demon out of her, and this causes a riot. And it says in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And Luke describes this, and remember Luke was a doctor, as a severe flogging. He says, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So this was, must have been extremely painful. I can't imagine what it would have been like to receive a, um, a flogging like this. Apparently, the skin on their backs was broken because later their wounds are going to be washed. And then to be placed in the stocks was designed to be very uncomfortable or painful. And so this really, Paul and Silas uh, were in deep pain. Uh, their mission here had, had turned into a nightmare, and they were uh, imprisoned with no expectation of what the future held. But it says in verse number 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison doors were shaken, and the doors flew open, and... You may know the rest of the story. What I want to focus on in my remaining time here is the fact that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Now, it doesn't say that they were doing that earlier in the evening. It may be they were in so much pain and they were just trying to let the pain subside or they were trying to work through this emotionally. They were processing it. Um, but at least by midnight, they had recovered their spirits, they had processed all of this, and they were starting to sing. They were singing hymns. And they were obviously singing hymns from memory, since they wouldn't have had any kind of scroll uh, or codices there uh, in that jail with them. They knew hymns or psalms, and they were singing them. And I've wondered what psalms might they have been singing? So I went through Paul's writings uh, in the book of Acts, his sermons in the book of Acts and his writings, and I looked at the various psalms that he referred to in his ministry. And he referred to quite a few, actually, um, according to one scholar, approximately one-third of all of the New Testament quotations in the Old Testament were made by Paul, and of these, about one-fifth are from the book of Psalms. That was an observation by a man, a scholar named Alan Harmon. So what Psalms did, uh, did Paul quote in his ministry? Well, he quoted Psalm number two. This, uh, a lot of the New Testament writers did because of the Messianic implications of it. But maybe he was singing Psalm two. You know, the book of Psalms was written to be and compiled to be a hymn book for the Hebrews. And 
most Hebrews, I think, memorized many or all of these 150 songs. It is very possible to know the words of 150 songs as you go through life. Uh, it's possible to memorize verses of hymns that you keep with you. Now, to do that, to have lifelong lyrics, you have to sing the same song periodically throughout the years. You can't just sing it rapidly 12 times uh, over 12 weeks and hope that those lyrics are going to stay with you for a lifetime. You have to continually be repeating the singing of these songs. But the Hebrew people were singing people, and they would sing on the festivals to Jerusalem, on the way there, on the way back. The great choirs would sing. Uh, they would sing in their homes, and I think that most Hebrews of that time knew most of these great hymns in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. I mean, that's exactly what had happened to Paul and Silas. These local rulers had risen up against them and flogged them and thrown them in prison. But verse 4 says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It says in verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father, and I will make the nations your inheritance. And he goes on to talk about how ultimately all of the rulers of the earth are going to bow down and worship the Lord. And if they are smart, they will begin now. So maybe they sang that one. Paul also quoted Psalm 16 in his writings. Keep me safe my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord apart from me. I have no good thing. And he goes on down to give this wonderful phrase that would have been very appropriate. I, pray, I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. I mean, that's very appropriate for what they found themselves in. And look at Psalm 18. The Psalm 18 and verse number 49. Uh, Paul quoted from this psalm. It's a very vivid psalm. And 49 says, Therefore, I will praise you among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. These are the sorts of things that I think that Paul was quoting. And one other one, the shortest psalm in the Bible, if you want your children to memorize an entire chapter um, and just to show them they can do it, then Psalm 117 only has these two verses, but how appropriate it would have been to sing them that evening. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you people. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So I actually found about a dozen psalms that would have been Paul would have known because he quoted from them, and he uh, knew them well enough, I think, to quote from memory in his writings because I'm not sure he actually had the scrolls for them as he traveled and wrote. He just knew this because, first of all, he was brilliant, 
uh, a brilliant study, student of the scripture, but secondly, the Hebrews just memorized their songs. And I was thinking to myself, if I had been flogged and put into the inner stocks and at midnight I had been able to sing, what hymns would I have sung? And maybe I would have quoted some of the words from the Psalms. We do not have the music, the original music, the uh, metrical uh, or the, um, the musical scores that Paul would have sung. I often wondered what it, or wonder what it would sound like to hear Old Testament saints singing the Psalms. Uh, we just don't have the music. But they had the music and they were singing uh, and they knew the words. What would I have been singing? So here are the songs, the hymns that I listed. Sing praise to God who reigns above, the God of all creation, the God of power, the God of love, the God of my salvation. And another great German hymn, Praise ye the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. And the wonderful Isaac Watts hymn, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. And Wesley's, and can it be that I should gain? And Wesley's, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And the wonderful hymn that says, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And one of my favorites, oh, worship the king all glorious above and gratefully sing his power and his love. And I think I might have sung Wesley's great Easter hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah. Now, I know the words of those hymns because I've sung them over the course of my entire lifetime. And also notice the hymns that I mentioned and also the ones that I... Uh, referred to from the Psalms. These are objective. They are not so much about my condition or my hope or my chains being broken or my getting out of the grave or my being set free. They are subject. Uh, they are objective songs about who God is and His attributes and what an amazing God He is. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His power and His love. There is something about focusing on God and our music, and not just on ourselves, that lifts up our spirit and helps us to sing songs in the night. And the prisoners were listening to them. This became a great source of ministry and testimony and evangelism. And then the Lord listened to them as well and sent an earthquake. And they were released from prison. The jailer listened to their message. He was baptized in whatever local little pond they had. And then with the same water, he washed their wounds. And in that way, the church in Philippi was established. So the thing that has been on my heart as I prepared this is the importance of having lifelong lyrics in our hearts and knowing how to sing to the Lord in the night seasons. So make your own little list. And if you're going through some difficulty now, find a great hymn or a song of praise and just try singing it and singing it over and over again until you learn some of the stanzas or the words and let the songs of the Lord bring the earthquakes into your life that defeat the devil 
evangelize the lost, and gives us the victory. Well, thank you for joining me today from Houston, Texas, and we'll continue on with this study. We'll go on with chapter 16 and 17 of the book of Acts. We're coming soon to Paul's great sermon in the, in the city of Athens on Mars Hill. And uh, be reading along with me if you can. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance with you and give you peace and may God be with you until we meet again. <music>